you know, the narrative for a very long time around why people are, are face eviction has been about poverty. But now you start to see this shift where we are talking about racial justice and the fact that it is not just about poverty. Congress needs to hear people ask for money over and over and over right. again until they give it to them. Welcome to the Poverty Policy Podcast. This podcast is a production of the National Healthcare for the Homeless Council, and I am Regina Reed, your host. On this podcast, we explore issues related to poverty and homelessness, along with the policy implications and solutions. For this episode, I'm joined by Noelle Porter, the Director of Government Relations at the National Housing Law Project, and Rashida Phillips, Managing Attorney at the Community Legal Services of Philadelphia. We discuss the past and present of the eviction crisis and the policies we need to stop evictions and ensure people who are evicted have adequate legal representation. This episode was recorded in November of 2020 in the midst of a rapidly changing environment. Keep that in mind as you're listening. Let's get started. Evictions is a big issue and I'm excited to have you both here. Let's start with introductions. Why don't we start with you, Rashida? Please tell us more about yourself and the work you do. Hi, my name is Rashida Phillips. I am a Philadelphia-based public interest attorney. Um, My official position is Managing Attorney of Housing Policy at Community Legal Services of Philadelphia. Um, I've been at CLS um, most of my legal career. Um, I started out at CLS doing community economic development work and representing um, small, uh, low-income child care providers and as well as nonprofits um, doing community-based work. Um, and then did some consumer housing law for a bit, um, represented folks who were um, facing mortgage foreclosure and um, utilizing bankruptcies and other strategies to preserve um, uh, family homes. And then about six or seven years ago, started doing landlord tenant work at Community Legal Services in our housing unit. Um, I uh, served in that position for a number of years representing folks facing eviction, as well as doing um, policy work around preservation of affordable housing and uh, tenant protections, um, both locally, statewide, and nationally, working with uh, organizations like National Housing Law Project. And then um, left CLS for a bit, did a year stint at Shriver Center on Poverty Law, and then um, recently returned to Community Legal Services back in July of 2020 to serve as the managing attorney of housing policy, which I do in my current position. Um, In addition to working at community legal services, I'm also an artist and um, cultural producer who does a lot of work around Afrofuturism. And I do a lot of my work um, from a socially engaged artist perspective. So I do a lot of bringing together of sort of legal work and housing advocacy with Afrofuturism and, and sort of cultural and arts strategies and approaches to dealing with issues of gentrification uh, and racial justice. That's amazing. I, I will link the organizations you work for in the show notes. And if you're comfortable, I'd also love to link to any of your art. Um, yeah, I have a couple of exhibitions up now actually that are online. So I'll make sure I'll, I share the links with you. Happy, yeah, happy to share. That sounds great. Noelle, please introduce yourself. Hi, uh, I am Noelle Porter. I'm the Director of Government Affairs for the National Housing Law Project. Uh, The Law Project is, uh, you know, 50 to 60 year institution, uh, originally kind of created in the war against poverty um, in the 60s to act as a backup center to attorneys like Rashida who are acting in the field and make sure there's sort of a 
a collaborative center of case law, precedent-setting litigation, um, and understanding of, of laws across the country that do exist to protect tenants, that do exist to preserve affordable housing, and, and how to encourage the network to act um, you know, to the best interest of the tenant, to the best interest of, of their housing and affordability. Um, and, you know, in the 90s, these backup centers, of which there are many across the country, you know, healthcare, immigration, et cetera, were defunded by the federal government. Um, but, you know, we've had this incredible opportunity as uh, privately funded nonprofit organizations to begin to advocate um, at the state and level, local level through our network of attorneys, just like Rashida, but also at the federal level, um, working to, you know, increase federal housing protections for tenants, increase preservation of the federal housing programs, um, and even invest more deeply in our federal housing programs. Um, Great. I, I want to ask you more about a lot of the things you mentioned, um, but before doing that, just take a step back and talk about evictions in general outside of the pandemic. Um, I pulled up some quick numbers. I believe I got these from Aspen Institute. So if you want to adjust or correct these, please do. But I'll link um, sources we mentioned in the show notes. Um, you are considered a cost burden with your rent if you spend more than 30% of your income. And we know that this is about half of all renters, which is just astounding. But even if you whittle that down and look at people who are paying 50% or more half of their income, on rent, that's still about 25% of renters. About 10% of renters have legal counsel available to them when they when they are evicted, whereas 90% of landlords do. Um, so those are just some starting, what more do you want to add about the how, the why, the implications of what evictions are and what they look like? So we really have to talk about why this is a systemic failure and why when we have federal systems in place that should be providing tenant assistance, that should be um, making sure that folks are only accountable for 30% or less of their um, income as rent payment, um, we're still failing folks. Um, and then to the, to the point about, um, about the, the representation, you know, there's a broad argument to be made for a right to counsel across the country. And I think Rashida can talk to that a lot more. Um, but when we speak specifically about evictions courts, this is a very targeted problem where landlords can afford counsel and therefore they show up every time with counsel in their defense. Um, and the issue is then that the legal aid that we need to provide to tenants is incredibly strained, is not fully funded, um, and we don't have the resources across the country. And so um, I'll let Rashida speak to just how much she's seen and knows about how this is happening on the ground. And when we talk about who is cost burden in particular, and who's rent burden, um, we have to talk about race in that, right? Because it absolutely is an issue that ties into race and, and um, impacts specific communities um, in, in specific ways th than it does other communities. And so when we look at who is rent burden in Philadelphia, it is um, primarily black women, um, black mothers in particular, single mothers, um, as well as other black families and, and other brown uh, Latinx and, and Hispanic communities as well face a high rent burden in Philadelphia, right? And so it does, it impacts folks in particular ways. And there's any number of reasons that go along with that, um, you know, that these families are more likely to um, have low wage jobs, um, be working um, in jobs that don't allow them to 
afford their rent um, without working 40, you know, 80 hours a, a week or something like that, or having to work multiple jobs. Um, a lot of these households are, um, again, uh, women-led or female-led households because of the high rates of incarceration in, in the community among, um, you know, men and, and fathers and things like that. So there's any number of reasons that we can think about about why and who is cost burden in particular. But what that leads to, right, is that when we look at things like um, who then ends up in eviction court, it is the same families. It is, there is an overlap, right? And so the ways that these, these two things connect to the things that you're referring to is that, um, you know, the narrative for a very long time around why people are, are face eviction has been about poverty. But now you start to see this shift where we are talking about racial justice and the fact that it is not just about poverty. Because um, when we look at data, um, even if we take poverty out of it, you still see that Black communities face the highest rates of eviction in our city. And so we did a, um, a study was done by an organization called the Reinvestment Fund that put out a policy brief showing that if you take income out of the picture, um, Black communities, Black sections or primarily Black sections of, the, of, the, of Philadelphia are still seeing the highest rates of eviction. So that tells us that we don't just have a poverty issue, we have a gender issue, we have a, a race issue as well. And so we have to focus on that when we're talking about how we address this and not just see it as this sort of one-to-one -one level, the person who comes before us has a crisis or has an issue that looks like at its face that they can't pay their rent, but then you find beneath the surface, there's all sorts of things going on that actually may or may not have anything to do with their ability to pay their rent. And we have to look at those issues and focus on those issues. And the only way, some of the only ways that we can tease out those issues is by having things like right to counsel that allows a tenant to access legal advice um, and understand actually what's happening in that, for example, they didn't need to pay, they shouldn't be paying rent because their roof is caving in and they're living in a property that's uninhabitable. And, you know, and so having right to counsel, having attorneys who, who are able to show up alongside of tenants allows us to get at what are some of the actual issues um, that, are, that folks are facing beyond just the poverty issue. Go ahead. I would just add to that. So I think that to Rashida's point, you know, we there's sort of been this longstanding understanding um, of eviction policy and eviction law that it's really a state and local issue. And it will remain that way. And there, there are a lot of ways in which states and localities take leeway either to improve policy and really try to suss out the racial justice problems that she's talking about and to address the issues that exist within the community, you know, depending on the sort of makeup of the governing bodies. Um, but what we have learned during the pandemic is there's a lot more that the federal government can be doing to address all of these disparities that we're talking about. Um, and we found that in this sort of crisis response. And so we're really eager as we move forward to encourage states and localities to make better and better decisions, to implement mitigation procedures, to work on having, um, you know, non-court alternatives to um, how to how to work through these issues, et cetera. But also we have learned that we can really advocate at the, the national level to really address some of this in a very real way. And um, it might, it's going to be a very exciting time for eviction policy and long overdue. What, I, what are the implications of being evicted? So court and legal proceedings are done. That's all done. You're evicted. What does that mean then for that individual? Yeah. So, um, you know, in addition to the short-term impacts of being evicted, um, you know, the, the sort of immediate trauma that comes along with being unhoused, um, 
with being locked out in what is, you know, a pretty violent, um, even if it's not physically violent, just the act of um, being locked out of your home, um, the, the trauma of that, um, there's the sort of long-term impacts of, of eviction, um, the inability of folks to um, find housing that is habitable, that is safe um, in the future, that is affordable in the future because of um, the impact of an eviction record and record alone um, will, will um, uh, have the tenant face issues of, of denial, um, you know, going forward for, for the rest of their lives. We see people come in with eviction records from the 60s um, that prevent them from, you know, accessing um, senior housing and, and other forms of affordable housing um, for, for, the, for the long term. Um, in addition to that is the impact that it has on um, things like um, your social networks um, being, you know, we see things happening like mass evictions where in one fell swoop, entire buildings of people are, are put out um, who no longer have connections. Um, they may have lived in that neighborhood for, for years or um, their medical, their doctors may be around the corner or in the neighborhood, right? They know their bus route. Um, so again, you're in displacing people Right, it actually literally impacts people's health. We've seen people die um, as a result of being suddenly displaced and not having a, a safe place where they can go and hook up their oxygen machine or continue their health care regimen, right? So, so these things have real life impact on people's health, um, their mental health, um, their prospects for future housing, their prospects for jobs, um, their, their children's prospects for education both short-term and long-term effects um, that are brought about by eviction. And part of that is just, um, you know, the culture that we have um, as, a, as a country that does not see housing as a human right, that sees, um, you know, having a roof over your head as something that has to be earned or deserved before you get it, um, or you have to be a good person in order to have housing, right? So, so that's a direct result of that culture, the way in which um, people have to be displaced and forced forced from, from housing um, in ways that impact their entire lives and put them in cycles that they cannot dig themselves out of. Um, and so it, it's a direct result of a lot of that. No, do you have something to add? Or- Rashida nailed it. I think yeah. that, again, I just want to, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to always be the voice of sort of the federal, the federal advocacy and the points about how eviction follows you around. And when Rashida says that, she's talking about filings, about um, about notices sometimes, and then ultimately about the adjudication of the eviction, which oftentimes is in favor of the tenant. The tenant gets to remain in their home, and yet the record will show that 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 filing was sent to the court, and that really impacts a tenant's ability to access the rental market in the future. That said, it is a longer-term strategy to also navigate that at the national level and say that we, you know, this this process of following folks around with seven years of even just a notice, um, where if you can find it on the internet, it will affect your application for your next apartment, is incredibly problematic. It directly targets Black and Brown Americans as well as the poorest among us. Oftentimes, those two populations overlap, and we have to really be looking toward a future where we give people the chance to keep coming back and to, as Rashida said, guarantee them the right to a roof over their heads, to a safe and secure and stable housing opportunity for they, for the individuals or their family. We need to talk about the pandemic. It's no secret that this pandemic has brought massive hardship, economic downturn, and people are pressed more than ever to make rent and to bring income in. 
I want to know how this is affecting both the federal policy world, what's going on. And then um, Rashida, I would love to hear how your work has changed. And, and So there are a number of prongs to the federal approach to handling the pandemic, specifically in the area of housing, evictions, et cetera. Um, we're still not seeing a ton of spending on rent relief directly to the tenants. Um, the CARES Act also included a moratorium that kept about 10.2 pe million people in their homes because that moratorium protected folks who lived in federally assisted properties. So Section 8 and public housing being the most obvious. Um, and there's sort of a broader definition of, of who was affected by that. That expired. Um, and we saw the House of Representatives attempt to stand up the HEROES Act in May, which would have provided $100 billion in rent relief directly to tenants issued, obviously, through the states um, and would have extended and expanded the moratorium. Um, unfortunately, that's floundered in Congress ever since May. Um, in September, the White House issued an executive order asking the CDC to take a look at what they might be able to do. And the CDC followed by enacting a federal moratorium on all evictions for non-payment of rent. It had some caveats. The tenant did have to access a declaration form declaring that they were eligible. And uh, there were some gaps in the ways that the strategy could proceed that allowed landlords to take some broad liberties and do some of the uh, activities Rashida was talking about earlier, where there's a lot of intimidation applied, where folks might move out because they're scared, even if they have the protections, where um, they're letting them know they're beginning a part of the legal proceeding, but they're not going all the way through and the tenants begin to panic and they begin to to determine what their next options may be. Um, and those, those gaps in the moratorium really undermined the, the um, efforts that the moratorium had to actually stop the spread of the pandemic, not to mention the benefits that we recognize as housing experts in saying we want to keep people stable in their homes and that that is a necessary component of you know, social determinants of health, as well as, as we've said time and again, um, the real right to housing that should exist and is not recognized in this country. Um, and so that, that declaration is set to expire in December. So there are a number of things from the federal advocacy level that we're concerned about and that we're focusing on. One is that we continue to say we need $100 billion in dedicated rent relief that cannot be spent on other expenses for these organizations that cannot be set aside for rainy day funds for the future as we're seeing in some communities, but that go directly to tenants and that directly then benefit the landlord. We have to recognize that this argument works for our partners in industry. Um, the other thing that we have to say is we need an immediate extension of the existing moratorium. We've asked the current CDC director to do just that so that it extends beyond December 31st and gives a cushion. And then what we've asked of the Biden-Harris administration is to stand up a true evictions moratorium that doesn't require landlords to sign a declaration or essentially apply for moratorium coverage, and that extends beyond non-payment of rent, but simply says, if we're really working to stop the spread of the pandemic, we will not evict renters um, throughout the immediate crisis of this pandemic. Um, and that coupled with $100 billion in rental assistance is enough to keep landlords in business, to keep the rental market going, and to keep people from owing tons of back rent from having these credit or eviction issues following the end of the pandemic, as Rashida has been talking about, and also to really, um, you know, keep folks stably housed through this as they attempt to come back to work, find new streams of funding, et cetera. Um, and so that's what we're kind of looking at as the broad 
packaging. Um, and, you know, we'd love if Congress then enacted a moratorium in statute following a new CDC order. Um, but we're working with the pieces of government that we have flowing right now and working with, you know, what's available to us. In Philadelphia, yeah, no, exactly uh, what Noel shared. Um, we're seeing on the ground the sort of um, application of all of the various moratoriums and rental assistance and the various forms of coverage that are happening. And um, it's really confusing times for everyone. Um, for um, things like the CDC moratorium or even the, the previous federal CARES moratorium, um, the application of it, how it's applied, how it gets implemented, um, what forms are used, what forms need to be signed, who needs to sign them, who needs to get them before um, the, the moratorium, apply. all of that has been extremely confusing, um, particularly with the CDC moratorium, which does not have um, requirements that, you know, for example, the landlord provide notice that the CDC moratorium, um, you know, could, could impact them or provide, you know, the CDC declaration form that people have to sign. So people not understanding that in order for that um, to apply to you, right, it only applies under specific circumstances, one, and then two, in order for it to apply, you have to sign the form. And then even after signing the form, right, the fact that there are ways that landlords can still end up in court, still end up taking you to court, despite whatever protections exist, um, illegal, you know, um, evictions are still happening. So I think um, the, the pandemic has certainly brought about a lot of different opportunities. Um, we have been seeing legislation fly left and right from um, our state uh, legislatures who, again, in, in, in previous times, we would not see sort of this proactive, um, you know, it's reactive in some ways, of course, of reactive to the pandemic, but proactive in the sense that they are taking um, the initiative to introduce and to look towards um, solutions that, that felt like they were years off. Three state representatives have um, attempted to introduce right to counsel legislation and are, are really looking towards um, getting something in place, hopefully in the next session. Um, so that's that's been really a, a, one of the positive things that have come out of this is that a real, um, you know, a lot of initiative and, and a lot of desire and political will has come forth about thinking about housing protections and different solutions that might not have been talked about or might have been years off under other circumstances. But that said, we're still seeing a lot of confusion on the ground, a lot of people very fearful. This, this like all issues related to poverty is a, can be very deep and weedy. It sounds like there's a lot of policy changes, a lot of reform that is needed just to make sure people do have adequate representation when they are evicted, to make sure the consequences of the eviction aren't incredibly harmful like they currently are. And then of course, all the systemic policy change we want to make sure that people aren't getting to that place in the first place that they have the wages and the jobs and that housing is a human right. So there's so many different policy asks and actions we can talk about, but um, Noelle, I, I appreciate you highlighting the, the immediate need right now in the pandemic. We need a moratorium, we need rent relief, we need, we need cash in the hand of tenants. Um, and so I will put links to, to those provisions that were in the HEROES Act and all the action alerts in the show notes. Um, but with all of that, just any last words on fixing this eviction crisis? I will just say that NHLP has published transition documents on a number of our policy priorities. And we do actually have a memo to the transition team regarding the immediate um, 
uh, eviction moratorium necessary. We also have a broader document proposing all of the different federal policy changes we would make to evictions policy to really tighten up and, and protect tenants. And both of those are located, you can go to our presidential transition page on our website, nhlp.org. So Regina, you could provide the full link um, once you click through the transition page. That evictions primer is a lot of what we have discussed and we'll be asking for. Great, Rashida. Yeah, I think um, Noelle really highlighted a lot of the things that we would like to see happen um, around policies dealing with the eviction crisis. Um, I think some other policies that we would love to see um, be introduced at a national level and that we're working on locally, um, Noelle mentioned a bunch of these as well, is um, would love to see uh, eviction record sealing or some uh, national way of dealing with um, eviction records and um, tenant screening and how eviction records are used against people. Um, would also love to see um, more support around eviction diversion programs and alternatives to um, having to go to court um, and, and just federal support or funding or whatever needs to happen um, to back those kinds of, of solutions and um, locally crafted solutions. And then also would love to see just more legitimacy around other forms of housing um, that are not relying on sort of the same ones that have been tried and true and don't really work for us. And so one of the things that we've been seeing in Philadelphia, um, there's been a recent um, really amazing victory by a group of unhoused folks um, uh, who were in, uh, had an, a protest-based encampment in Philadelphia for a number of months. Um, and through that um, victory have been able to get 50 vacant properties owned by the uh, Philadelphia Housing Authority and the Philadelphia government transferred into a community land trust that is led by, um, by, the, by the unhoused folks. And so seeing more solutions like this, seeing more community-led, community-driven solutions, um, solutions that are led by folks who are actually impacted by housing crises, who know the, who have the answers, who know how best to, to get us out of these crises and supporting those um, sort of community-driven uh, responses and interventions, I think is, is what I hope to see happen in the future and what I am excited about supporting in, in my capacity as a, as a um, housing advocate. That's fantastic. And yeah, and my final question, which I ask every podcast guest is what you're feeling hopeful about. So Rashida, I don't know if that's, if you just wanna sub in what you just said as you're hopeful or, but Noelle, what, what are you feeling hopeful about? I think, um, you know, I'll go back to what I've said throughout that we are excited about how much we've learned, um, unfortunately, through this pandemic and this crisis, how much we've learned, how much power the tenants have shown us they have um, to organize and how much um, access we believe we should have to changing and shifting the federal government structure to really benefit tenants more. I think we're learning a lot about what that federal policy can do if we get our hands around really shaping the narrative and really, you know, redressing all of the racial um, inequalities and challenges that exist and, and, and really working federal government policy to work to serve the most poor and the most in need. Um, and that'll make a lot of change. That's great. Thank you both so much for joining me and being here.